How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing preservation of ecosystems in the age of global change. California's rolling hills and grasslands are one of the iconic images of the Golden State. Beyond their beauty, they're also an important part of the state's economy and ecosystem. Worldwide, grasslands are being cut up by development and impacted by cattle grazing, agriculture, and other activities. Cows and other livestock grazing on grasslands are a big source of carbon pollution. Some researchers say grazing patterns can turn that around and actually help cut greenhouse gases. Over the next hour, we'll look at the importance of grasslands to economies and ecosystems ranging from California to Montana and all the way down to Patagonia in South America. We also will touch on the testy relationships between conservationists and ranchers and the impact of hydraulic fracturing. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have three guests. Pete Geddes is Managing Director of the American Prairie Reserve, which is an effort to set aside three million acres in Montana. Christine Tompkins is founder and president of Conservation Patagonica. Did I say that right? Close? Uh, and is an effort that already has set aside two million acres in Patagonia. And she's also a former CEO of the Patagonia Clothing Company. And Wendy Silver is professor of environmental sciences at UC Berkeley that studies grazing patterns and carbon. Please welcome them to Climate One. So, Tris, Chris Tompkins, let's begin with you. How did you go from running a clothing company to setting aside lots of land in South America for conservation? Tell us briefly that story. Well, certainly my husband, Doug Tompkins, had a lot to do with that. He um, retired, sold his um, Also business, a clothing entrepreneur. Also clothing in 89 and... Um, he founded Esprit in, in, in North Face? Yes. Okay. And... Um, like Doug, both of us felt that we had done what we could and felt like we should do within the clothing business. And we wanted, we just decided to spend the third, last third of our life, most likely, um, trying to protect those places that we had come to love over years of climbing and skiing and, and, um, our identification with, with wild places is quite strong. And um, really, that's how we got started. And we chose Chile and Argentina because they were both areas that we we loved, and um, and the idea of living down there was quite uh, attractive. I bet. Well, we'll get into more of that in the company and the conservation in a minute. Uh, Pete Geddes, uh, a group of people from Silicon Valley, have decided largely were instrumental in setting aside. Uh, some land in Montana. Tell us how that came about and uh, that story of Silicon Valley to Montana land preservation. Sure. I think that uh, Montana just has a natural attraction to people, particularly if they grow up in urban environments. We're the fourth largest state in the, the Union, with uh, the size of Japan, with a population of less than a million people. So there's lots of wide open spaces there. And our founder and founding board indeed uh, spent their careers um, 
in the Silicon Valley in technology and venture capital and came to Montana uh, to see this project, which is now about 10 years old, and its effort to put together, much like Chris is doing in Patagonia, three and a half million acres of native shortgrass, sagebrush, steppe prairie. Uh, we're working in one of the last four places in the world where these native grasslands remain in a large enough state and still intact, meaning they haven't been plowed to do some meaningful conservation. So it's interesting. Chris is working in one of the other two. So you have 50% of those grasslands represented here tonight. And Wendy Silver, tell us uh, why grasslands are important. They're beautiful, but why are they so significant to, to save them? Well, so grasslands cover about 40% of the Earth's surface. People don't realize that it's the dominant cover type in, in and in California, it's about 50% of our land area. So it's a really important biome. Um, it's also important because it provides a lot of services that we depend on. Uh, it is the, you know, dominant way in which we get a lot of our protein. Um, a lot of, most, most, um, grazers, sheep and, and cattle are grazed on grasslands. And in fact, almost all the grasslands in the world are grazed either by native species or by, uh, livestock. So they're important to provide services for us. Um, they're also important from a climate perspective because grasslands tend to occur in places where um, it's hot and dry. And so those plants, the plants that grow in grasslands naturally, have adapted to put a lot of their energy and a lot of their, their uh, biomass, the tissues that they make, below ground into the soil. And any time a plant does that, the, the material that they put into the soil has the potential to turn into carbon, soil carbon, and, and thus can get stored in the soil. And any carbon that goes into plants that eventually goes into soil is carbon that's not in the atmosphere. And grasslands have the potential, when they're healthy, to store a lot of carbon. And so they have the potential to help remove carbon from the atmosphere and store it in a place that's relatively safe for, for pretty long periods of time. So is setting aside a few million acres of uh, grasslands in Montana, Patagonia, is that a significant carbon endeavor? It certainly is a start, and I think that um, it depends on how those sites are managed. I think, you know, if you manage, if you, if you manage them in a way that helps build those soil carbon pools, then yes, it can make a difference. Um, however, unfortunately, a lot of grasslands are managed in ways that release carbon to the atmosphere. And, and so many of our grasslands globally and in the U.S. and in California are degraded. They've lost a lot of their carbon. So what we've been trying to do is figure out, well, how can you manage those systems to bring that carbon back into the soil, take it out of the atmosphere and store it? And that leads to healthier ecosystems in the long run. Pete Geddes, is this part of the conversation in Montana, the climate conversation? Do people acknowledge that climate change is happening in Montana? Well, uh, this joke is just too good to tell, so to not tell, so I'm going to tell it. Uh, and that joke is that every public meeting in Montana, we begin with a prayer for global warming. It was snowing when I left at 5 a.m. this morning. But uh, Montana... Uh, I think that prayer is going to come true, whether you like it or not. Yeah, yeah right. Well, the, the way that, uh, for those of you who have been in Montana, we have uh, some pretty good fly fishing in the state and, uh, and beautiful river systems, and those depend on snow. And we're already starting to see that in the mountainous western half of the state, we see less snow in the winter, and we see earlier runoffs in the spring. And this is just empirical data, so there's not much uh, interest in arguing about it. Uh, from our perspective, the uh, the role that we feel our grasslands can play in terms of carbon sequestration and amelioration is making sure that this prairie doesn't get tilled. That's the number one threat that our lands face. 
uh, primarily through uh, perverse incentives in the farm bill. And so, just because tilling releases the carbon exactly, up into the air? Is that, exactly. Okay. And Wendy, Wendy can tell us all about the science of that, but it, it basically releases this stored carbon. And one of the reasons we're working on the northern Great Plains of Montana is historically these grasslands have been grazed rather than farmed. So 95% of the area in which we work is still intact native prairie. Chris Tompkins, is the climate impacts down in Patagonia something that people are seeing, recognizing? Well, I think the science community is. I don't know that uh, the layman uh, would. The glaciers in southern Chile are, are um, becoming well known for the, the rate at which they're um, disappearing. But in terms of forest... Um, Impact. You don't really see those kinds of things. And um, actually, we do have one event taking place, which within the Southern Beach Forest, the the caterpillar. There, there are plagues of caterpillars that are actually wiping out um, certain tracts of Southern Beach forests, and that like seems the bark, bark to be beetle that we've seen yeah. seems to be related to change in climate behavior, but. I'm not sure about that. Wendy Silver, uh, California's climate plan now includes management of grasslands. So tell us about how that could be part of the solution. Yeah, so that's a very exciting development uh, for us. We've been working for the last five years to try to understand if um, grasslands can play a role in California's climate change solutions. Um, and and the the new plan that came out is is just beginning to outline what the role of grasslands might be, but it's certainly a recognition that in California we're, we're, we're rich in grasslands and we're rich in this potential to be able to, to um, use these ecosystems as ways of helping to mitigate climate change. Um, there's many different approaches that are being explored. Um, the, one of the ones that I think has, has the greatest promise is taking, it's, it's kind of a funny um, approach some people think, but it's taking the waste, the stuff that we throw out, the organic stuff that we put into landfills, food waste and plant waste and all the other things that we don't want, taking it out of the landfills, composting it, and then applying it back onto the land. And we can do that with our own urban waste and, 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 and rural waste, but we can also use things like you know animal manure and animal waste products that right now are often being applied in a raw form, which produces greenhouse gas. Composting that even just a little bit appears to lower the greenhouse gas emissions and has the potential to increase the storage of carbon in soils. So it, it ends up being an even bigger gain because the plants grow more. The, the ranchers love this. They're getting a lot more forage out of it. But we're also taking care of a waste problem that we have. We don't have enough landfill space anymore to throw this stuff away. And so we're using it back on the land where it came from originally and using it to help grow more food and get that carbon down, down in the ground. Cows are often thought of as a big greenhouse gas problem because of the methane that they release. So should is California going to manage cows differently, fewer cows? What's the cow situation? Well, so so one of my uh, postdocs, Dr. Marcia Delange, did a, a life cycle assessment of that. And a life cycle assessment is, is, is really just taking all the numbers, like an accounting sheet, and putting them all together, all the pluses and all the minuses, all the costs and all the benefits, and seeing where it ends up in the end. And so she looked at what the cow methane emissions were and the landfill methane emissions and how much savings you have and all the transportation from moving the stuff around. And the way it came out in the end is that 
Um, as long as you don't increase the herd size too much, uh, you still get a net gain. The, the real catch in all of this is not to increase the herd size. Um, and so we went to talk to ranchers in California and also in the Great Plains um, because, again, this, is a, this, this approach has the potential to be used there as well. And we said, well, if, if you were able to grow more grass on your land, would you just buy more cows? And they said, absolutely not. It would just offset needing to buy more food from outside. They would be able to have more, a more locally sustainable approach and thus wouldn't need to necessarily import food. So it looks like from that perspective it's likely to work as long as the, the you know, herd size doesn't increase. And it sounds like the, the ranchers probably wouldn't be increasing the herd size. Pete, have you had any conversations like this with ranchers in Montana interested in composting or the, the cow situation? Um, the place that we work in Montana is so remote. Um, that is composting it, supply. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, there is none of that going on there. And uh, by and large, the ranchers have done uh, a fantastic job of managing the grass. The uh, herd carrying capacities uh, are, are quite sustainable now. Uh, this is partly due because most of the land that the ranchers graze on is federal public land administered by the Bureau of Land Management, so it is regulated in some sense. But again, I think our chief concern would be just making sure the soil stays right side up rather than getting turned upside down. Let's talk about the reintroduction of predators, both uh, starting with jaguars in uh, in Patagonia. That's a really big deal. And then we'll get to wolves in Montana. How Part of your goal of this restoration effort is to reintroduce predators that have been not been in the landscape for the last whatever. So tell us about that, Chris Tompkin. Well, first of all, our jaguar reintroduction is taking place in northern Argentina outside of the Patagonia region. They never went that far. Okay. But the jaguars in the... Iberá wetland system have been extirpated since the 1930s. And as we have been restoring grasslands and certain areas within this very large wetland, um, part of restoration has to be the reintroduction of the species that, that used to be there and are currently not. So we started with the giant anteater about six years ago, and those are successfully back into the system um, working on peccaries, eventually tapirs. But, of course, um, you have nothing if you don't have the primary predator. Therefore, we started the project of the reintroduction of the jaguar in this area. And um, it's a long-term program. Obviously, it has social, um, cultural ramifications. It has um, uh, a lot of contentious issues attached to it, but one of the specific reasons we do it and the, the reason that it's possible in Iberá is we have over 700,000 acres of no conflict zone, which is very hard to imagine in most places, no matter where you are. So, And the fact that it's a wetland, so you don't have the impact, the human impact, um, cattle moving in and so on. So it's an area where it's a viable opportunity with to, to introduce them, which is the first effort in the world. It's a no conflict, thing. meaning no wars, no arguments. What no is the conflict, no? that is, no cattle, no dogs, no humans, no. That that it is open. It is um, no one's living inside this area. Wild to nature as of nature. Yes. Unfolds. Okay. And is, has there been resistance by ranchers and others to introducing jaguars who worried about their livestock or worried about human impacts? Actually, I think we're working the only place in the world where the, 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 the province 
is anxious for the jaguar to come back. It's a very, a very tough province. The Quarantinos kind of imagine themselves as sort of Guerreros, very tough, very independent people, um, not so interested in, in the national government. And they, they see the jaguar as their soulmate in a way. And so it came as a complete surprise to us. We were ready for five to ten years of socialization of this idea. And now the big criticism is we're not we're moving fast enough. So it's a very unusual circumstance. So it sounds like they're Texas. <laughs> yeah. Te- Texans with big knives down their backs. <laughs> Okay. Uh, peek at us. Uh, the wolves, was it possible that your restoration efforts will include uh, reintroducing wolves, which have been reintroduced in Yellowstone not too far away? Yeah, I think uh, our, our goal is uh, we're a biodiversity project, and, uh, and Chris makes a very good point about space. And our project is about space. We're putting together the largest wildlife reserve uh, in North America. So it'll be three and a half million acres when we're done. Just for comparison, comparison, Yellowstone's 2.2 million acres. The way we're going to do that is we're going to buy about a half million acres of private land, which knit together this public-private land a checkerboard pattern up in Montana, which is a legacy of, of failed homesteading in the state. Uh, predators need lots of space, and the easiest way to get uh, social acceptance, we talked about this last weekend, Greg, and I know Chris faces the same thing, our problems are not biological or ecological. They're sociological in terms of reintroducing big, reintroducing big predators. Uh, wolves in the state of Montana are now controlled by the state. They were introduced by the federal government. So we have actually very little to say about them except that our goal is to have enough acreage put together such that when they come back naturally to our lands, which they will, they're probably already there in some spots, are very good at expanding territories. They don't get in conflicts with ranchers. The last thing I'll say about that is there's some very, very innovative work going on in Montana and up along the Rocky Mountain Front trying to help ranchers relearn what they used to do and know, uh, and that was herd and tend their animals in a very different way than they do now. Um, right now they just sort of turn the cattle out because there's no need to, to run around and make sure that uh, – there are big predators, or certainly coyotes and other and other predators on that. So it's a sociological thing. It's getting people to understand that these predators do have a space in the landscape, but we also have a responsibility to make sure that our neighbors uh, are not suffering undue economic loss. And it's not just economic loss. Ranchers, particularly in Montana, I'm sure Chris finds this, they have a real animal husbandry obligation. They feel moral responsibility to these animals and watching them get eaten is uh, is upsetting for sure. So again, if we can get enough land together, work on some of these sociological issues that are the real uh, nut for us to crack, I think we can uh, have a place for big predators. So it's upsetting for a, a wolf to eat a cow, but it's not upsetting for a human to eat a cow? You haven't spent much time in Montana, yeah, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, explain for us why... Reintroduction of top of apex predators are so important, and how that would benefit the ecosystem. Yeah, I think uh, most of your listeners and viewers are familiar with Yellowstone National Park, where wolves were reintroduced. Uh, prior to the reintroduction, the wolves had basically been gone for uh, almost 50 years. So wolves like to eat elk. Elk like to eat willows. Beavers like to eat willows. So you have uh, this sort of cascading effect when you remove these top predators from ecosystems. You have too many elk, as we did in Yellowstone. You don't have enough willows. You don't have any beaver. They left 
park, basically. So you have all these sort of knock-on second-order effects. And up where we're working in Montana, just uh, last uh, week, some colleagues, uh, we have a team that lives out on the reserve, said there were moose back uh, in this part of the world. And uh, it's not great moose country, that's for sure. So over time, as you can start to uh, put lands together that are big enough to let these animals run around on, the top predators have a hugely uh, influential impact all throughout the ecosystem in all different sorts of ways, and you can start to get some of these things back. There's a big generational land transfer going on from a certain generation of families to others, and I'd like to know uh, how that's playing into approaches towards conservation and perhaps other if that's happening in Argentina and, and in Chile, to, to think about, and their families want to continue in ranching or they're trying to get out? Is that opening up opportunities for conservation? Yeah, definitely. That's why we're working in, in this part of Montana. And, again, we're up in the northeast corner north of the Missouri River. Uh, this part of Montana is land that uh, – Probably should have never been settled. If any of you have read John Wesley Powell's works on his studies of the arid lands of the United States, this is an area where we tried to replicate the successful homesteading that was uh, worked fine in Iowa and Ohio. So you get 160 acres, you can prove up on it. You get you get it. Except we're well west of the 100th meridian, which is the line of aridity, and this is land that was settled in cooperation with railroads and and the government, trying to dispose of the federal estate, and it is a brutal place to make a living. So where we are in our particular part of Montana, people have been leaving uh, since the First World War. So it's a, it's a version of the story. It's hard to keep the kids down on the farm when they see the lights of Bozeman or Missoula. It's a really tough place to make a living. People move out over time. And uh, this intergenerational transfer of ranch lands that you talk about, Greg, uh, works well with our conservation strategy because we're up there offering these folks a way to basically – capitalize their assets. They're all very cash-poor, land-rich. So all their equity is tied up in land, and there really aren't that many other buyers. Chris Tompkins, anything similar happening? Uh, Very similar, Um, especially down in Patagonia. Some in in the central southern Patagonia, people are actually just walking off their land and, and abandoning their estancias. But generally speaking, I think the the circumstance is quite, quite similar that as it is almost everywhere in the world, people are leaving their farms, their ranches. Um, and often we're working in very isolated places as well. And we often represent a buyer or the only buyer that someone, because people can't buy it to, to continue that land as a productive piece of land. So um, a lot of people are just trying to find a way out and especially in the Patagonia region, where a 10,000-acre ranch, 20,000-acre ranch, could hold 11,000 sheep, but today it can only hold 3,500 sheep or 2,000 sheep. And so ec- the economics of it are, are just, they're not there. So and I- the kids don't want to be on the ranch anyway. It's very hard to find people to work on estancias in southern Patagonia. There's a big push towards urbanization across the world, people leaving land and, and other, other countries as well, moving into the cities. Uh, there's also a growing population, which let's get to that issue, this, this, the, the population pressure and resource constraints uh, in terms of 9 billion people. A lot of pressure is cutting down land to grow soy, other things to feed people. And so let's talk about that pressure, uh, whether it's not maybe not so much in Montana, but certainly where you are, Chris Tompkins, 
to feed 9 billion people what's happening down there? Well, certainly in Argentina, um, from the Buenos Aires province north, the conversion of grasslands and um, Chaco, dry and wet forest, the conversion to soy is tremendous. It's fast. And um, there's legislation to try to slow it down, but nobody pays attention to it. I think in Chile, if you look at um, central Chile north, you'll see seas of pine plantations and seas of, of um, now grapes. So the conversion of many different types of, of ecological systems is, is very, very fast, and it's happening all around the world. I mean, I think it, if you're working in the Amazon, no matter where you're working, there, there's no way you can protect enough land by simply carving it off to the side um, to address the rapidity at which it's, it's being converted on the other side. Wendy Silver, we talked a little bit, um, you know, some people might say, well, personal choice to have int- uh, reduce carbon impact would be eat less meat, meatless Monday. Mm-hmm. So you might go to tofu burgers, but then you're just cutting down, that's causing demand for tofu to cut down the land Chris Tompkins is talking about. Is there any way out? That, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we've got a real problem with, with this. And, and, you know, we work a lot on, uh, with ranchers who are who are grazing beef, and in the Bay Area, pe- you know, people are really supportive of grass-fed um, meat products and grass-fed fed dairy products, um, which has been shown to be, in some ways, more you know, a more sustainable use. But we can't meet the needs on our grasslands. We don't have enough grasslands in the world, and 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 to to and they don't have the carrying capacity to fill what people want um, from a protein source. And there's some evidence that there's some, some people who say that, that we, especially in the developed world and especially in, Cal- in the U.S., that we more, way more protein than we need. Um, and so c- just cutting back on protein, you don't, have to, you don't have to trade that hamburger for a soy burger. You could trade that hamburger for something that's growing in your garden. Have a nice salad with lettuce and tomatoes or something that you can grow outside. Um, you, you know, I think we need to rethink what we actually need to eat um, and what we have gotten used to in the habit of eating, um, and, and maybe also eating less. I mean, you think about um, some of the other problems that our society faces with obesity and, and with overconsumption. I think we do need time has come for people to to shift their their mentality and their habits to to utilizing less and realizing that they're having an impact uh, much greater than they may realize on the environment. So while I actually think that that uh, grazing lands play a very important role in climate change mitigation. We have the potential to use these grazing lands and, and use cattle and livestock to help slow climate change. We also have to be reasonable in what we how we use that um, and, and 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 think about our own personal footprint and impact. Um, people just need to become more aware and and think about their habits. Chris Tompkins, you think that that will happen not voluntarily but by crisis and necessity. I do. It's not a very popular opinion. Cheer us up. But no, <laughs> you're coming to the wrong girl. <laughs> I, I really believe that for, for reasons that still confound me, that since the late 70s, the discussion of population worldwide is off the table. It's very difficult for people to talk about human population levels. And I see it as a 
I hate this description, but it's a perfect storm, a rising population base, rising consumption levels against a falling natural resource base. And I think it absolutely leads you to the necessity to understand that there are limits to everything. And it's across the board. And until people really understand this or come to terms with it, the situation that we find ourselves in will only be exacerbated. And I believe at this point that the only thing that will really shift human behavior is a crisis. And I am not an over-the-cliff um, thinker, but I am, uh, I believe that that generally the human condition will not improve over the next century necessarily because of all these conflicts and pressures that we don't seem to be able to address. We have an economic system premised on compounded quarterly growth. Yes, we do. And uh, so there's population growth and there's compounded quarterly growth for certainly for public corporations. You're on the board of Patagonia, a privately held corporation. Can you envision Patagonia without growth? I mean, growth in nature, it's grow or die. I think you have to. I think it's really a lack of imagination to imagine that you have to keep growing in the face of incredible evidence that it is impossible to do so. You can begin to take the market share of somebody else, but eventually you're going to come up against a hard truth that we can't all grow. We can't all have whatever we want, and eventually um, civilization has to come to terms in our generation, and the ones short to follow have to come to terms with the fact that there are other ways of managing human societies, because this one is not sustainable. That's what I think. Christine Tompkins is founder and president of Conservation Patagonica and former CEO of Patagonia, the clothing company. Our other guests today are Pete Geddes, managing director of the American Prairie Reserve in Montana, and Wendy Silver, professor of environmental sciences at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the founding, uh, back to conservation. Uh, Pete Geddes, the, the Rockefellers, the Mellons, um, what you're trying to do out there is trying to evoke some of the images of those families that had that vision and to put aside a great uh, area of land for future generations to, to, uh, to share. It may not solve the systemic problems Christine Thompson is talking about, uh, but it could preserve an island for some. Yeah, I'm sure like uh, many of you and your, and your listeners, you came to love uh, nature through uh, experiences in national parks, uh, like I did with my family. And uh, the national, great national parks of the United States, Yellowstone and Yosemite and Glacier and Grand Teton, are all what we call rock and ice wilderness, and that's a wilderness that I initially fell in love with many, many years ago. Those areas were chosen for largely for their geologic uh, beauty and scenic beauty. The grasslands were working, and I'd be curious, Chris, to, to hear your sort of evolution from a rock and ice person to a grass person. Uh, okay. We're, we're literally just walked over and rolled over, and you can still see evidence of that on the Great Plains of Montana. Uh, a place, a biome, as Wendy mentioned earlier, that uh, is globally significant but insignificant in terms of its uh, conservation uh, under protected area status. So uh, that's uh, this is the, we view our project as an opportunity to right 
a, uh, a, a sort of miss, uh, a miss forgot, or forgotten landscape. So the Rockefellers, of course, had a huge role in uh, our Western parks, and we hope that we can find another generation of philanthropists and donors who are interested in getting into the ground floor of a Yellowstone-like place in an ecosystem that's incredibly beautiful, holds is capable of holding a ton of biodiversity, and is, is very underrepresented from a conservation perspective. But your goal is not to create a national park. I mean, I believe Chris Tompkins, all of your land set aside is a national park. Eventually it all goes t- into a national park service. So Pete Geddes, why not do what lots of organizations, Trust for Public Land, lots of open space trusts do, is hand the land over to government for stewardship. Of course, the national parks are all closed today. We realize <laughs> that if we're recording this. But uh, why not – why not the national park system? What's the deficiency in that model that you see? Well, it's an interesting question uh, to contemplate whether or not the era of large-scale landscape conservation in the United States is over, whether it was this window that Ken Burns has so eloquently described in his series about the national parks. What, what were the conditions that made that so such a unifying thing for the country? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what the case is. That's an interesting sort of cocktail question to have, and I'd love to have it. But our view is that given the constraints on the federal government, uh, we can, in a public-private partnership, again, we're a nonprofit organization buying and holding land. We place conservation easements on some of our land, but we're out to own property so we can really turn it back into a wildlife habitat, that that public-private partnership is perhaps a model for achieving really big conservation going forward. I'm not talking about little Monticellos. We're talking about, you know, three and a half million acres of native prairie. Uh, and we just don't see the federal government or any or the state government taking that over uh, anytime soon. Uh, we're, we're moving really, really fast. We have a 30-year project. We're a third of the way through it, and we're very ambitious. And, and doing this through private philanthropy allows us to move really quickly and not get caught up with uh, – and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense. I think it's just a reality, the bureaucracy of these things. Uh, Wendy Silver, the University of California played a, a seminal role in the creation of the national park system, and you're part of an effort or, uh, to reclaim or, or bring forward that story. Well, yeah, so the, the park service is going to be 100 years old next year. Um, and what a lot of people may not realize is that there, there was a meeting a year before the Park Service was established at UC Berkeley um, to, to, to plan this out and to dream and to have a vision of conservation um, at a national scale. And the next year, the, the Park Service was established, and the first two directors of the National Park Service came from UC Berkeley. So Berkeley has a, 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 a very proud history um, collaborating with the Park Service and helping to lead the Park Service and help, helping to envision the Park Service. So next year we're going to have a big celebration at Berkeley to, to bring people together to look at both the history and the future um, of the Park Service and, and, and the role that it can play, I think, in our society. And you're all invited. Um, <laughs> so, Chris Tompkins, do you want to say something about the National Parks as a destination and as a model for conservation? Well, I would say that it really depends on where you're working. We don't say that national parks is the only way to secure long-term protection for lands. But in where we're working, in Chile and Argentina, we think, if you look in terms of 100, 200 years out there, that our best bet is to institutionalize that protection. And that, in Chile and Argentina, is represented by the creation of new national parks, that 
you know, nothing in the future is, is, is a sure thing, but where we work anyway, it's probably the best shot. And I think everybody, whether you're working in Gabon or Montana, it just depends on where you're working and what the circumstances are, and then place your bet and go for longevity the best you can. Let's talk about fire. We've seen an uh, increasing number of fires, certainly Colorado, California this year. Uh, scientists say that we can expect more fire, intense fires, uh, as, the, as climate change uh, comes at us. Uh, Wendy Silver, how's that going to affect management of, of grasslands? Are they going to burn more frequently? Is that a bi- bad carbon uh, effect if grasslands uh, go up in smoke? Absolutely. Anytime that you burn an ecosystem, you're releasing carbon back to the atmosphere. That black smoke that's coming off, a lot of that is carbon going back to the atmosphere. And and you can take a, a grassland or a forest that may have taken decades or centuries to accumulate that carbon, and it can be gone like that back in the atmosphere in that fire. So an increase, especially an intense fire, which is predicted for some areas where there are grasslands in, in the U.S., um, with climate change, with drying and, and increased temperatures and these increased um, storm events, that bring lightning, um, lightning started fires, um, has the potential to decrease the amount of carbon storage. Now, fire is also a natural part of a lot of ecosystems. And if we can manage ecosystems to allow those lower intensity fires to happen, you know, at a, at a reasonable time scale, um, ideally manage them in such a way that they don't endanger structures and they don't endanger people. Then, then we can lower the impact of those big intense storms. But there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion as to what the impact of these big fires is going to be. And in some cases, it can actually shift an ecosystem out of a grassland completely um, and, and leave it so that it may be impossible for that system to return to its previous state, at least over the scale of decades to centuries. Because some people would say that fire suppression is a failed strategy. I would agree with that. Um, we spent our summer vacation in Yellowstone, actually got up very early in the morning looking for wolves most mornings, did not find any, unfortunately. But, um, but we saw evidence now 30 years later, I think it is, uh, of the Yellowstone fire. Um, and the Yellowstone fire burned very intensely because fire had been left out of the equation. They had drawn a line on the map and said, this is a park and we're going to protect it. Um, we're going to remove all of these things that's going to change these beautiful big trees and the things that people really go there for. But that's not a natural part of the environment. And so all the fire fuel built up, and if all it took was, you know, the right conditions, and it came through and was catastrophic, devastating fire, and and has the potential, again, to shift that ecosystem so we're, we may, you know, we may not get those trees again. So Smokey Bear wasn't right? I mean, is that what you're <laughs> no, saying? No, I hate to say it. I think Smokey was misguided. <laughs> wow. Okay, Pete Geddes. We like lots of fire where we are, uh, and and uh, the reason for that is uh, fire is, of course, a natural part of the grassland ecosystems all over the world. And one of our management goals is to take a landscape where fire has been effectively extirpated for 150 years, a landscape that's uh, dedicated right now to a very single focus, and that's the production of protein through raising livestock. So it's a very homogenous landscape because when you, when those are your management goals, you want to simplify things. You want to reduce variables. So in our lands, we want it to look much more shaggy, heterogeneous, messed up. We want different age classes of grasses because 
uh, different uh, species depend on those different uh, structures in the landscape, just like a forest, only our forests are this high. So, for example, long-billed curlews, uh, very endangered grassland bird, love it uh, hanging out on uh, prairie dog colonies, the, the dog towns, because the grass is really clipped short. Fire does the same thing. We have a very, very uh, a difficult job with fire because we have neighbors, and neighbors don't like us burning their grass or burning their fences. So we've been reintroducing fire very slowly onto our landscape because we have an obligation not to let it go crazy. But what we like about it is we just burned a 1,000 acres a year ago in our bison herd. We've got 300 bison running around up there. I have spent most of the last year on this burned area because regeneration, which has been absent, is so intense, and the nutritious qualities of freshly regrown grass are just fantastic. So they're they're just mulling around on this uh, this big patch of burned area. Uh, so we're using it as a management tool, uh, not so concerned about the carbon implication because these grasslands have burned over a long period of time. Uh, Indians burned them to move the game around, um, and, and we're using it to advance our wildlife restoration goals. If you're just joining us on the radio, Pete Geddes is Managing Director of the American Prairie Reserve in Montana. Our other guests today at Climate One are Christine Tompkins, founder and president of Conservation Patagonica and former CEO of Patagonia, the clothing company, and Wendy Silver, professor of environmental science at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. I'm going to ask you one uh, question, then we're going to go to our audience participation. Uh, starting with Chris Tompkins, how do you manage your own carbon footprint? What do you do in your life to reduce your personal carbon impact? Very good question. Uh, we move around a lot, so that's not helping. On planes? Um, small or large, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, well, a lot of, on our, in our work, mine personally or in our work? Either well, way. Start, starting personally, yeah. Well, I think that we have a general philosophy in our family of um, a low, 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 low consumption. We try low personal consumption. I think you see it more aptly in our work and and um, the efforts toward the type of machinery we use, the type of um, management decisions we make on our farms and within the conservation areas. But but it's tough. Make no bones about it. Um, I think we're caught up in a in a system uh, that uh, is not very it's not very easy to back off of your basic consumption levels unless you're a giant consumer by by habit and trade. Um, it's difficult. What would be one specific next thing your your next carbon list? If you've already done one, two, three, what's number four? Oh, I would fly less. A lot of people say that here. Wendy Silver, what do you do to, to manage your personal carbon? Well, I, I kind of feel like I, I manage my personal carbon from two perspectives. One is I dedicate my life to trying to get carbon out of the atmosphere um, and or just understand the mechanisms we can do that from a science perspective. But we do a lot at home, too. Um, I, I've become a, a firm supporter and believer that, that, that if all of us did what we could, it, it would begin to add up and make a difference. And and to be honest, I've learned a lot from my 13-year-old son, who doesn't have the same consumption patterns, having grown up in Berkeley, that I grew up with in Southern California. And so 
we've I've learned to use less. Um, we had a big drought here in California a few years ago, if you all remember, and we used a lot less water, and our energy bills went down. And we realized, well, we don't need to use all that water. We got by just fine. So we've changed those habits. Uh, we compost everything we can think of, and uh, we try to reduce the amount of plastic we use. So those are the, those are our big steps now. We'll see what comes next. Electric car. Oh, love one. As soon as I can, as soon as I see, we have, we have to use our cars until they're not capable of being used anymore, except for parts. Because every time you buy a new car, right, you've got a big carbon footprint from producing a new one. So the next time one of the cars finally dies, it'll be electric or a bicycle, one or the other. Pete Geddes. I mentioned earlier, Montana is the size of Japan with half a <laughs> thousand people, and my son plays travel youth hockey. Uh, so we drive our Suburban a lot in the winter on very bad roads. And people in San Francisco like to laugh about that. I was in Montana on, on Saturday, and it's like, yeah, if I lived here, I'd have a Suburban. Yeah, I can see, definitely see how that <laughs> part of the culture there. Let's uh, go to our audience uh, participation. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have your question. Welcome. Hi there. John Gelbert from NRDC. Um, thank you for, for all of your work. Um, here in America, grasslands are 750 million acres of grazed ecosystems, and the majority of which are poorly managed. Actually, ranching stewardship leaders will tell us, you know, 70 percent, 90 percent. They always they are always kind of the harshest critics from from our experience. But as far as motivating change and taking advantage of this opportunity to improve management and ecosystem processes. Um, on this vast area of land. Um, it's a huge behavioral issue. You know, a lot of the, you know, when I mentioned this to uh, a representative of National Cattlemen, they said, you know, we learn all this great stuff in universities, but then we have to go back and tell mom and dad that they've been doing it wrong and that grandma and grandpa did it wrong. So how do you see better incentivizing and driving these types of changes to improve management of livestock, which are the primary uh, use of these grasslands. Who'd like to tackle that one? Uh, Wendy Silver, then Pete Gettis. I'll, I'll start. Yeah, so <clears throat> that's a really good question. And, and, um, and I think you kind of answered in the beginning, and that I think everybody now is beginning to realize that we need to change management. And, and, and people are beginning to face... Um, conditions on their their lands and, and, and in our lives that we've never faced before, right? The new new climate, new new rules, and and we've found that at least here in California, people have been very um, open and 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 not even open. They've actually been pursuing new ideas and and giving ideas to scientists, but also lots of agencies that are involved. So I think that there's that, that changes. We're we're in a there's a sea change that's happening. I think we will see a lot of new approaches that are getting tried. And I think it's, you know, it's up to us to tell our government officials, too, that we want this incentivized. Is that yeah. generational cultural change fast enough to defuse the carbon bomb? Good question. Um, you know, a lot of the ranchers that I'm working with are not the new generation. Um, I, these are people who ha- have watched their land for a long time. And the ones who are still in business, they're in business because because they're innovators. They're looking for ways to keep their system productive. They're looking for ways to diversify. 
I mean, the cheese industry in this area has just grown dramatically because they're looking for ways to diversify. They're coming up with ways in which they can maintain this wonderful lifestyle and this wonderful land use that they've had for so long. So, again, I think we need to really... Uh, if, if, if there's a weak point in here, it's, it's, making, it's helping these folks make, make these changes. It's giving them the right, the, you know, the, the, the technical and financial support that they need to, to move forward. Pete Gattis? Yeah, if you take uh, my uh, assumption that the greatest threat to the grasslands is conversion to agricultural commodity production, then at least in the northern plains of Montana when we, where we work, the ranchers have done a very good job in managing the grass. Uh, there's also quite a bit of wildlife up there. Uh, where where you start to get into a rub is uh, anything that is a big predator, of course, and then competition for grass. They haven't done such a great job, but by and large, we try to tell uh, at every opportunity the ranchers who we're talking to and working with that, you know, the, one of the reasons we're working here is because you guys have done a very good job storing this grass over time. It's still in a condition where, uh, where you know, we can bring the wildlife back. Thank you for that question. Let's have our next question in Climate One. Yes, sir. Hi. Thank you. And really admire and appreciate your uh, selfless effort in the conservation. And this is a question about the conservation, uh, the model of conservation through philanthropy. Um, If conservation only through philanthropy, is that more one dollar, one vote? And uh, those individuals who can support these efforts, they are in some sense the least vulnerable to the impact. And sometimes they're living thousands of miles away and uh, and it also fits the narrative of the Western, uh, the industrial elite come to save Mother Nature from the reckless industrializing hand of the developing country. Uh, and that narrative is particularly troubling compared to the colonial history that created much of the structural poverty in many parts of the world where now is going through these industrialization. I wonder what's your thoughts on can we have a conservation model not through private uh, elite philanthropy, but through engaging the local community, empowering and engaging those who are most affected by the degradation, by the climate change, um, and build community and protect nature at the same time. Thank you. Chris Tompkins? Well, let's start with the word, the word elite, because I think um, there are a lot of people involved in conservation at a lot of different levels. And in the United States, for instance, there are thousands of local land trusts who are working within their communities and at the edges of their communities, protecting key habitat, whether it's wetlands or a particular forest or whatever it is. Um, So conservation comes in all shapes and sizes. And a lot of large-scale conservation that goes on, whether it's through the Nature Conservancy or some of our projects or all sorts of different groups, there are a lot of people who partner in those projects, and they're not necessarily wealthy people. So it's a, it's a community of people who are concerned about habitat, wherever that may be. Um, to the, the question of, of colonialism, it's always interesting to me. Um, we're asked about this quite a bit, and I think um, one thing we have to think about is when, when a Canadian mining Corporation goes into northern Chile and sucks the, you know, the guts out of out of the highlands of northern Chile. That's considered appropriate or at least possible because that's the economic structure. But if you, 
you'll find critics of um, someone else who is going in and not destroying the habitat because that falls outside the the common way of thinking these days. Um, I think also maybe uh, one small point that might have something to do with what you said is, at least where we work, we've never bought any land that has anybody inside of it. We work in very isolated places, extremely low um, human population areas, and we are extremely sensitive in, in being good neighbors and community involved and working shoulder to shoulder with, with um, those around us to see that what we're doing makes sense culturally, socially, and economically for the people around. So I think um, that's how I would answer that anyway. Chris Tompkins is uh, founder of Conservation Patagonia. Uh, Pete Geddes, your organization was founded by some wealthy people from Silicon Valley. They kind of swaggered into Montana, and, and initially there was some resistance from the people in Montana about outsiders coming in. And So t- answer that question, and then we'll get to the next audience question. Yeah, Montana has a, a very long history of being very, very suspicious of outsiders, and this basically stems from our uh, colonial past where uh, raw resources were exported from the state by eastern moneyed interests. Uh, if you've ever been to the town of Butte, you will see the legacy of that. So uh, folks are, uh, uh, and it makes for a very interesting political climate in Montana, which is much more progressive in the, war, in the way you guys understand it than you might think, but that's another story. Um, everything that Chris said is absolutely true. Well, one of the things that I really take away, having been in conservation for a long time, is the lessons that we started to learn in Africa in the mid-1980s and early 1990s, and that is when you draw a line on a map and protect an area and then put people with guns pointing out to protect it. Uh, you, you rob and exclude local communities from traditional user rights of those habitats, and that's a recipe for failure all the time. Uh, so that model of conservation uh, does not work. We do much the same sort of things that Chris does. We just uh, started a, a wildlife-friendly beef company called Wild Sky. You can go on the web and get it, wildsky.org. It's, uh, it's an attempt to provide economic benefit for our neighbors who are going to be in our area uh, forever. Uh, when we get this all done, we're going to have people who are living on private ranches right around our, our border, and it's very important to us that we have good relationships with them. The last private inholding just came out of Grand Teton National Park, I think, uh, this year. But just to your final point, there's, uh, you know, most uh, conservation in the world is not done uh, through, I mean, a lot is done through private philanthropy, but it is by uh, federal or the state, uh, whether that's in the United States where we have this very advanced model where Chris is working or we're in the developing world where there are protected areas, but they suffer from all the sort of pathologies one gets in uh, developing countries sometimes. That's our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, hi, uh, Rick Ridgway from Patagonia, the company where over the years I've worked with uh, Chris and our companies also su- supported the American Prairie Reserve over the years. We greatly admire their work, but my question is actually for Wendy. Uh, and it is whether you or your colleagues, Wendy, uh, have worked to develop methodologies or uh, I suppose even protocols or maybe mathematical algorithms that would measure the carbon sequestration of properly managed grasslands so that those uh, so that that carbon might be uh, traded on markets, uh, including here in California with AB 32. 
So, so that's an excellent question, and, and it, it, he really wasn't planted. Um, we have never met before. Um, we are in the pro- <laughs> we are in the process of working uh, of working with the Environmental Defense Fund to to uh, put together. We have a proto- draft protocol of looking at this idea of taking waste out of the waste stream, composting it, and then using it as a way to grow more forage on rangelands, uh, save the soil and, and hold water, but also sequester carbon. And so if this protocol goes through the, the stages that it needs to go through in the state of California, then ranchers would be able to use this to apply for carbon credits that people would pay. And I don't think anybody's going to get rich off of this, but it certainly will help pay for managing these systems and maintaining these systems over time. And there are others of my colleagues that are also looking at other approaches, grazing approaches, other management approaches that would allow uh, that do sequester carbon in, in the landscape and, and help those get, again, in, incorporated into our way of thinking, whether it's through a carbon market or it's through an incentive system in the government. Um, yes, they're, they're, the scientific community is, is, is gearing up to try to come up with ways in which we can use our, our natural lands and the management that we really need um, to, to slow climate change. Wendy Silver is a professor of environmental sciences at UC Berkeley. Let's have our next audience question. Yeah, my name is uh, Paula Tejeda. Uh, I was born here, but my parents are both from Chile. I can't tell you uh, how um, how deeply I took a deep breath when actually I saw that Douglas Tompkins and the work you're doing uh, was taking place in the south of Chile because I could see how they were cutting the forest and you could see literally hills of chips and the yeah. tractor would be on top of the hills of chips in Puerto Montt. And I would tell them, you know, that the work that this Californian was doing was very important. And they were all, the Chileans were like, he's up to something. He's up to something. <laughs> Nobody buys that much land just to protect it. And I said, yes, a Californian would do that. And I've had this argument many times. Uh, actually, I'm very good friends with Carola Morgado in, uh, yeah, in Puerto Varas, uh, because my, I have family in Puerto Varas. Jose Antonio is a relative of mine. And, um, your question? Yeah, actually, yeah, right, get to the question. One of the things, Chile's all agriculture and they don't compost. And there's practically no, uh, recycling. And one of the things that happens is that Chile wants to be 20, first century. They want to be the United States (laughs) idea of the 21st century in the 20th century, not what we're really working towards in the United States, which is actually what they have, which is local sustainable that they're losing as they try to become the McDonald's, and when you go to Chile, oh my God, we have a McDonald's, and look, there's little signs. And your to question? It. So my question is, is that, is there a shift? Do you see a shift now with, through all your work, you know, we're having an election. Are, are people realizing the importance of local sustainable, uh, you know, recycling and composting, all of this? Thank you. Chris Tompkins? Well, specific to, to recycling, I know that President Pineda's administration just put through something, some law, and I don't know the extent of it, which I think is the first in the country. So yes, they're, they're coming to it, perhaps later than some, but earlier than others. 
Um, in terms of conservation, Chile has changed a lot since we arrived 20 years ago, and I'm not at all suggesting it's because of us. But you have many, many leaders, including the president of the uh, uh, excuse me of Chile, who have created large-scale conservation areas. They may not want to donate them back to the government the way we do, but they're there and they're taking them very seriously. I see Chile changing very, very quickly in some very positive ways. We have to we have to wrap up. So thank you. You can we can talk more after offline. Uh, we have just a couple minutes left here, and I want to ask each of you as as we close, starting with Chris Tompkins, uh, how hopeful are you that the global economy will solve the carbon problem without a great deal of disruption? Are you hopeful? You think it's going to get? Well, I'm hopeful. That's for sure. As a, a friend of ours, Arnines, said once, he's not so uh, optimistic about the 21st century, but very optimistic about the 22nd. <laughs> um, I, think, I think it's going to be an all-hands-on-deck response to these issues, and certainly the structure of the global economy as it pertains to uh, carbon markets and and other areas are going to have to play a significant role. And I hope they do. Wendy Silver, you teach undergraduates and students at Berkeley. Are they hopeful? Are you hopeful? You know, I, I'm, a, I'm just a naturally optimistic uh, person. But I also feel that we're going to have a few bumps and bruises along the way. I think that there is a way forward. Um, I do think that we will, um, and we are, developing strategies, um, but there's going to be change. Um, we have passed the point where there will no, you know, where we can go back. So, so, so I think once we embrace that and realize that, well, now we need to look at what we can do and start doing it now instead of arguing about it or planning. We need to embrace Montana. Uh, we need to embrace other countries um, and sit down at the table and say, well, what would work for you? What, what can we do? And, and I think, you know, I look at the students coming out of our, you know, my classes in Berkeley and all that energy and all that enthusiasm. I, I do think that we can get there. Good you hope. Pete Geddes, we might move to Montana. It sounds like you could use some more people up there. But, uh, Bring your willies. Yeah, uh, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic on two dimensions. One, that uh, the American uh, vision for uh, big, broad landscapes is not diminished and we can actually get that reignited to some extent. I'm, I'm very optimistic about that. Regarding the climate question, I'm a, I'm a rational optimist in the title of Matt Ridley's book, which if you haven't read, I recommend highly. I think we're uh, very good problem solvers. You've heard people, my fellow panelists here, I think we're a very optimistic people by nature, and I think that's the only way one has to be. We shouldn't be Pollyannish, but I think we'll get this fixed. We have to end it there. Our thanks to our, our, our guest today, Pete Geddes, Managing Director of the American Prairie Reserve in Montana, Chris Tompkins, Founder and President of Conservation Patagonia and former CEO of Patagonia, Inc., Patagonia Corp., uh, Wendy Silver, Professor of Environmental Science at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One conversations are available in iTunes. Our Twitter handle is at Climate One. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you.